This is a trigger warning that in this episode, we speak about eating disorders and body image issues. If you find these conversations disturbing, perhaps skip this episode and come back for more running chats next week. Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. the Femi Pod episode 85. My name is Lydia and as always I am joined by Esther and today we are here to chat to the incredible Katie Babbitt, a researcher at the University of Auckland as well as a passionate runner who is part of the Femi Run community in Auckland. Katie has recently completed her PhD titled Eating Behaviours, Body Image and Mental Health, Updated Estimates of Adolescent Health, Wellbeing and Positive Functioning in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In this episode, we want to dive into Katie's work and her findings and the issues surrounding bad body image for girls and women. Katie, welcome to the FemiPod. We're so excited to have you. How are you today? Good, thank you. It's so good to be here. Love it. That's good to hear. So let's dive right in. We really want to understand your work and why your passion is in this space of work. Um, So I think to have a better understanding of that, we'd love to understand your background. So can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing as a young girl? What impact did sport have on you? Yeah, of course. That's a good question. I actually wasn't a very sporty or active kid, if I'm honest. Um, I was much more the kid hiding in the bathroom, staring cross country, um, or like faking sick on school athletics day. Uh, It just wasn't really my scene. Um, And the why for that is a bit complex. So when I was about eight, I was diagnosed with epilepsy. uh, And back then, a frontline treatment for that was a medication called Epilim, which effectively like managed the condition, prevented seizures, but for many people leads to lots and lots of weight gain, regardless of what your dietary intake is or what your exercise habits are. So from a pretty young age, I was living in a pretty large body um, and that informed just about everything really. Um, Most of my formative years in terms of social development, identity development, psychological development, it was all through this lens of existing in a much larger body than my peers. And truthfully, when, when you live in a larger body, whether as a child or as an adult, you end up on the receiving end of lots of scrutiny and stigma and criticism, both from adults and from other kids. Um, And I didn't really have the tools to deal with that. So I withdrew from a lot of things, um, struggled with my body image and with my relationship to food, to put it super lightly. Um, And I think a real side effect of those struggles was that sport and exercise to me always felt like a bit of a punishment. Um, Definitely something that I always felt like I had to do, but never something I really wanted to do. So I never really got to fall in love with sport properly until I was quite a bit older, which um, reflecting on it as an adult is a real pity because I love it and I think I would have it would have added so much value to my life when I was younger um, but I got there in the end I played a bit of lacrosse throughout high school and uni and fell in love with running not long after that but yeah the short of it is that you know for a number of years yes my upbringing was a little bit challenging but it's definitely put me on a path that I'm proud of and and one that I'm super pleased to be on as well so both in the context of sort of psychological practice and research 
I'm super passionate about making sure that young people have access to the kinds of tools and the skills that they need to be able to manage their relationship with food, uh, manage their relationship with their body, and really meaningfully engage in a full and fun life that brings them joy. So I think, you know, like the two of you, I've sort of crafted a career by creating something that my younger self really, really needed, which is the biggest win of all. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I it definitely makes sense as to why you do the work you do now. And I honestly think it's so incredible to see people take their their pain and their challenging times in their lives and turning it into their power and not only a power for themselves, but a power for other people. So like massive kudos to you for doing that and the work that you're doing now. It's really changing lives. You are now a runner and part of our Femi Run community and one of our Femi athletes. Tell us about your running journey. When did that start for you? And maybe give us an update as to like your relationship with running now. Oh, yes. I am so stoked to be part of the Femi family. Um, as I say, running came into the picture a little bit later in my life. Um, initially picked it up in my teens. I was super caught up in dieting and I wanted to change the way that I looked and I thought running would do that for me. So of course, not a recipe for success in terms of falling in love with sport. Um, But as I got a bit older and put some serious effort into really healing my relationship with food and with my body, um, I also developed a real love for for movement and eventually for running in particular. Um, I'd say my running journey really took off when I started to sort of pivot my thinking um, from valuing my body for what it looked like or what I wanted it to look like to sort of really valuing it for its functionality. So all of the cool things that it could do. Um, And then by extension, valuing running for the sense of accomplishment and empowerment that it was able to give me. Um, I think it probably sounds a bit trite, but I think running gives us the tenacity and the resilience that's really transferable to all areas of life. Um, and you know, the nice thing about running in general is that the better you are at listening to your body and giving your body what it needs, um, the better it performs. So it was a really positive feedback loop for me in that sense. Um, and especially in those earlier years, I really credit it for keeping me well, both like physically and mentally. As far as the Femi Run community, I've been part of the Auckland crew for just over a year now. Um, and it is truly one of my most like consistent and reliable sources of joy it is so wonderful I look forward to it so much each week Uh, and I know a lot of the other girls sort of reflect the same sentiments having such like an awesome community um, girls who are all very much on the same page about both running and more broadly like life in general is just so awesome Um, and also having such a wonderful coach who offers really sound advice and just such a solid voice of reason through all of the peaks and valleys of life is huge as well and it's really kept me on track (laughs) so big shout out to coach Laura she's an incredible friend and mentor oh I love it yeah coach Laura is incredible all the Femi coaches are so amazing but you've definitely got a goodie there with Laura um and that that's so nice to hear the Femi community you know has been something that's been a really awesome part of your life for the last year we're so lucky to have you heading along every week and leading the way um you know, in those open conversations and creating really strong friendships. It's beautiful to see. But if we can go into your PhD a little bit deeper now, can you tell us about your studies and your PhD? What led to this being the topic for your thesis? And can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, that's a super good question. I guess the short answer would be 
my lived experience in this space, like having had and subsequently recovered from an eating disorder, I feel and really passionately about figuring out how to prevent other young girls from walking that same path. Um, both body image issues and eating problems are such like thieves of joy, but at the same time, they are everywhere. It is so incredibly common, um, and but also so incredibly risky in terms of long-term health outcomes. Um, so I really wanted to do a project that explored how adolescents today are faring. Um, and how we can improve things for them. So in service of that, I'm, my PhD was kind of in two main phases. So firstly, collecting as much information as I could from adolescents about their experiences with things like um, weight-based bullying, body image problems, and disordered eating, you know, just to really better understand where they're at. Things have obviously changed a lot since we were adolescents. Um, and that second phase was really about intervening. So developing a school-based wellbeing program that aims to tackle some of these issues um, and give adolescents some of the tools and some of the skills that they need to manage their, um, their physical health, their psychological health, um, just so that they can have a more peaceful relationship with, with their bodies, um, focus on feeling good uh, and functioning well and enjoying their adolescent years. So interesting. And do you want to just go through the process of actually doing the PhD? Like what did the research piece actually look like? Yeah, it was a bit of a mix. I um reached out to a whole heap of schools throughout the country, gosh, hundreds and hundreds, and sort of just pitched the project and said, like, look, this is this is something we're really wanting to do. We want to understand what's going on for people. Um, and subsequently we want to figure out what we can add um, and how we can sort of help in this space. So uh, varying levels of interest and involvement, but it was really cool both both to work on sort of that, um, I guess, macro level of seeing what other researchers have done overseas and pulling data from sort of surveys sent out to hundreds of adolescents to then getting able to go into the schools and work with kids face to face and um, talk to them about mental health and give them some really practical tools and tips and get to engage with them um, in a much more like practical manner so yeah a really fun project from beginning to end and such an important one I think the results really showed that body image issues is very common amongst adolescents and in mm -hmm. your paper you state that specific to issues relating to the body and food approximately one in three male participants and one in two female participants in the present study reported body image dissatisfaction we have our own thoughts, but what did you find out from your research why more girls are suffering than boys? I would love to hear your thoughts on that, actually. Um, so we'll definitely circle around to that. I mentioned this term before, but I think diet culture has a lot to answer for here. Um, diet culture is kind of like this hidden curriculum that teaches us to moralize everything. You know, we've got good foods and bad foods, and good bodies and bad bodies. Um, and I think a lot of that stems from what we'd call like the thin ideal, which is sort of like this belief system that worships thinness and equates it to like health and moral virtue, essentially glorifying losing weight at all costs, which of course we know is not sensible. We know it's risky. We know that health can't be simplified to a shape or a size or a certain look. Um, but even still, the messaging is everywhere. And while I think 
generally the tides are changing a lot of this stuff does seem to have a generational aspect to it so like in the last 50 years say I think women in particular have been at the center of this culture um, and have been put under immense pressure to in essence be underweight and to this day the, the diet industry is worth billions of dollars and the industry for decades has disproportionately targeted especially young women um, you know even though we do have so much more information at our fingertips these days about how to care for our bodies and how to exist peacefully within them um, body dissatisfaction and disordered eating is still something that gets passed on and passed down and communicated both to our generation and the generations below us um, I actually think one of the more interesting takeaways for me was that boys are suffering suffering much more um, than research and society have previously been aware of um, so often these things are considered to be like women's issues, but what we're seeing more and more is that boys and men are suffering too, but it's um, it's definitely flying under the radar. So I'm pleased to see that for both girls and boys, for women and men, um, it's, it's gaining a bit more traction in terms of research and prevention. But um, yeah, curious to know what you guys, what you guys think about these findings. What do you think is coming into play here? Yeah, well, even when we think about, you know, um, Reed's relative energy deficiency syndrome, only only in the last five to 10 years has that concept even come around because before that it was around female athlete triad, right? And it was all around women suffering, uh, disordered eating behaviors, and then ongoing menstrual cycle dysfunction and bone health issues. But we know that men suffer as well. So Obviously, there's been a lot of work and um, progress in that space to include males and male athletes in that issue. But I think for girls and women in general, there's just been so much pressure ever since we were young kids to focus on what we look like. And so much of our self-worth seems to be tied up in our appearance. And even when you're a young girl and you still see it all the time, people saying, oh, she looks really cute or she she looks like that or she looks great in that dress or like it's all about her appearance. And um, I think it's also alongside this idea of comparison and young girls constantly being compared to each, each other. I do, I don't know really like the reasons why, but I feel like I see a lot more young girls being, being compared to each other than young boys. And I mean, as we grow up in the workspace we see comparison a lot because there is just not enough seats at the table for women. So it's very easy to understand why there that comparison comes into play there because we're all fighting for limited spots, right? But when you're a young girl, the idea of comparison, I mean, I remember growing up even around the ages of eight and nine and looking at other girls in my class and in my school and wishing I looked like them. And here I am as a young girl who is pretty innocent, just loves sport. I would say I was relatively confident in myself, but I still wanted to look a different way. And it like breaks my heart to think about my younger self, but it also breaks my heart to think about young girls who are probably suffering that 10 times over nowadays in the world that we live in compared to what we were going through. And it's um, obviously at FEMI, we speak about sport and movement being a tool to build confidence in yourself. And that's why we do what we do really to keep women in sport in a really sustainable way. But yeah, I mean, it's so tragic to think about these young girls who aren't feeling confident in their bodies and, um, and having issues with the way that they look when they should just be focusing on being healthy, happy, young, young girls growing up. 
Yeah, absolutely. You totally hit the nail on the head there, the way you wrapped that up. Like at the end of the day, that's all we can ask is that young people are able to like move through the world free of that sort of comparison and those body image concerns and trying to be like other people. You know, I, I think body diversity is something that wasn't uh, quite as common uh, when we were growing up, like exposure to body diversity, that is. Um, I think we all sort of wanted to look a certain way, be a certain shape, be a certain size. Um, and I'm really hopeful that things are improving, albeit a little bit slowly for girls and the generations below us. Um, but I hope things will continue to move in that space. Definitely. Yeah, you see a lot more diversity in magazines and online these days, which is like amazing to see. But like, yeah, I think back to when I was a young girl, it was stick thin white woman everywhere. And so no wonder we all kind of wanted to look like that. Um, but I, I know I also wanted just to add like one other thing like that I've heard about and I know it's highly linked and you probably know a fair bit about this around their diet culture, but like what your mother was like when you were growing up, I think we've, we've touched on it a little bit as well. Like my mum did a lot of yo-yo dieting um, and that potentially impacted, you know, how I saw my body um, knowing, you know, what her goals were out of that diet were to become skinnier. Then, you know, you learn from that and you also want to sort of take that same, those steps. Um, so I'm sure like it all trickles down from, from yeah everything you're around your environment what you see um but yeah it's it's hard to see young girls still struggling and both Liz and I've had our experience and Katie you would have seen so much of it in your work but um I'd love to know like a little bit more about like the particular differences I know that your PhD was on adolescence and not only girls but also boys but what's sort of been the major differences and or similarities between girls and boys when it comes to body image issues specifically Mm, that's another really good question. Um, it's hard to say on the whole, but I guess anecdotally, a lot of boys who were involved in in my research anyway, a lot of their appearance concerns were related to muscularity, um, whereas girls tended to really want to be thin. Um, that's not to say it's like an exclusively gendered construct. There were definitely some girls in the sample that, that wanted to be bigger, they wanted to be more muscular, um, just in larger bodies in general. And there were also boys in the sample that wanted to be in smaller bodies. But um, on the whole, the trend sort of moved in opposite directions for boys and girls, um, which kind of suggests to me that adolescents, you know, even as we've talked about, we are seeing more diversity in media, print, online, TV, everywhere that we consume media. It's I think it's getting more diverse as the years pass. But I think adolescents are still very beholden to these sort of traditional concepts of what it means to, to be feminine, to be girly, to look like a woman, and what it means to be to be masculine and to look like a man. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that was sort of a pretty major difference, for sure. Yeah, I think about, you know, when you're a kid, the... Um the opportunity that lies in front of you in terms of your career and what society is telling you you can grow up and be and for a lot of young boys it is like you can grow up and be a professional athlete like especially in New Zealand growing up to be a all blacks is like almost every young boy's dream because that's what society is telling them they could and should be 
Whereas for a lot of young girls, it's like you're going to grow up and have a particular role as a female. And it's not about your fitness or your physicality. It's about what you look like. And if you're presented well, you're going to have more opportunities. And there's this idea of like pretty privilege. If you're a pretty, you know, white, thin woman, you're going to have more opportunities. So, um, of course, you're going to put such so much more of an emphasis on the way that you look, whereas a boy like their muscles is a representation of how strong they are and if they're strong that that means they probably can be an athlete um and so when you break it down like that I feel like it makes a lot of sense but you know hopefully for a lot of young girls nowadays they're actually able to see these incredible female women athletes like the football players who recently were at the world cup and be like wow, I could actually be that. So I'm actually just going to focus on how strong I can be and how well of an athlete I can be. Not that you should be a high-performing athlete when you're a young girl, but, you know, putting a, a dream out into the world of like, I want to grow up and be that. Who cares what I look like? I just want to like prove myself as a woman athlete. I'm hopefully the world is changing. I think it is. It's really exciting to think about where it is going for girls in the future. But I guess then you think about the impact of social media and and that comparative world that we're like growing up in. These young girls are growing up in that probably is turning it the other way. So it's it's hard to say where it's going to go, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like it feels in many ways like a double edged sword. Like social media is in in many ways the gift that keeps on giving in terms of representation. Um, diversity, access to different parts of of the world and different opportunities. So, you know, as kids are accessing social media, they're seeing things that we never saw when we were growing up. Um, Again, harking back to that theme of of diversity and what you're talking about, sort of potential, the many, many things a girl can be in this day and age. But as you've also alluded to, this other side of like, oh my goodness, they're getting exposed to different sort of images of what it means to be a woman and different ways to control your weight and shape and different ways, you know, things that that can be harmful. So it's it's really um, an interesting space is at the way it's all moving so quickly between TikTok and Instagram and and things like that. So yeah, I think it would be a tough a tough old time to be an adolescent to be a young girl at the moment but like you say I I hope sort of with the right protections in place um, the increase in community and connection online will lead to better outcomes for young women. Mm. And what do those kind of protections look like? Like why why is it so important for early intervention for those suffering as adolescents? I know for myself I had a pretty good relationship with my body as a teenage girl, but I definitely spent a lot of time wishing I looked a different way. Although it's hard to kind of put those two things against each other because they're kind of opposing. Right. But I was a confident girl, but I also like compared myself all the time. Um, And I wonder if someone had stepped in when I was a teenager, I might've not gone down the paths I went down when I was in my twenties, but what learnings did you find um, about the ongoing impact bad body image can have on women in particular as they grow up? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately for for adolescents, for young girls who struggle with disordered eating and body image dissatisfaction, we tend to see what's called like a maladaptive drift over time. So that basically means that for most kids, these things to de- tend to develop quite early uh, and then progressively get more severe instead of 
tapering off and or going away. Um, and sometimes that means that for certain people, these develop into really significant mental health challenges. Um, and as a general rule of thumb, as with other sort of health problems, health issues, things are generally much more easier to manage the earlier that they're caught. And I think the other thing that sort of springs to mind is that kids who struggle with disordered eating and body image dissatisfaction face much poorer uh, psychosocial outcomes. So they're less likely to take part in sport. They're less likely to be social and have wide networks of friends. Uh, they're less likely to perform well at school and, and generally struggle academically. Um, and that's, you know, that's due to a number of factors, but um, it also doesn't magically go away in adulthood either. You know, left unchecked, these kinds of problems can really prevent young women from engaging in a full and, and meaningful life. Um, so, you know, if if we're able to intervene early, if we're able to catch them young and build in some of those protective factors, whether it be um, sort of basic mental health management, um, appreciating their bodies, whatever the case may be, the better off young women will be in the long term. Yeah, it's such a like tricky topic, isn't it? Like if you notice something in someone having those conversations or bringing those things up can be really difficult. Um, but it is so important that we do, right? Like, and getting professionals involved. I just know that I was really lucky that my mom was like, put her foot down when she started to notice these weird changes in me around food. Because yeah, if I'd let it go longer and longer, you know, those pathways just get stronger and it gets harder to change. Um, yeah. It's, it is tough conversation to have though. Mm. Did you find any correlations between those kids who played sports versus those who didn't? Yeah, so involvement in sport wasn't something that I looked at too, too closely as part of my own research. But, you know, what we do know from other research is that involvement in sport can be protective if the sport is coached appropriately. Um, you know, if we think about involvement in weight class sports, so things like rowing, gymnastics, dancing, running, things where often um, conversations about weight take a bit of a front seat, that can definitely increase the risk for, for problems down the line. And, you know, as we know from Bex Atwell's work, some coaches have terrible attitudes towards athletic performance um, and it can not only prevent women and young girls from performing at their best, but it can prevent them from staying involved in sport in the long term. You know, if you're more like, if you feel pressured to look a certain way um, and then ultimately participate in behaviours that that change your body, that does have, have health consequences for young women. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that the way young athletes are taught to conceptualise their sport can be a huge protective factor. So, um, you know, this is probably overly simplistic, but even coaches who take a really like strength-based approach um, and a gratitude-focused approach to their coaching can foster much better outcomes in their young athletes. Uh, again, Bex is absolutely the expert here, so I totally defer to her on all this, but uh, in my sort of limited knowledge of the sports science research, um, athletes who have high levels of of gratitude and sort of conceptualization of the functionality of their body so again what it does not what it looks like um, tend to report sort of greater resilience better mood um, improved life and sports satisfaction and lower levels of burnout when we're talking about high performance sports so um, yeah there's there's 
a huge protective element to sport if it's if it's facilitated safely. Um, so yeah, not a lot of findings from my end to speak of, but I'm super excited to see what Bex does in this space because there's so much room for improvement in the research world, as you both know. Um, and she is a real gunner for this kind of thing. So it's big things ahead, I think. Yeah, Bex is amazing. It is crazy to think about the responsibility that coaches in particular and teachers at school have on these young kids lives and how they're going to grow up thinking about themselves and I remember when I did ballet I started ballet at a really young age about three years old and I danced for about 10 years and I still remember to this day a girl in my class being told that she didn't have a body for a ballerina um, and months later ending up in hospital and being you know fed by tubes because she had suffered such bad body image from probably one or two comments that were made to her by our ballet teacher and I I would imagine that's probably impacted her for the rest of her life which is tragic and then I went into an environment with an incredible female coach who never spoke about the way we looked it was never about what we looked like and it wasn't even about our performance it was just go out and enjoy sport and enjoy running for what it can do for you as a person and and thankfully I think that impact definitely outweighed the negative impact that ballet teacher had on me. Um, but I would hate to think where I could be if I am, was put in more toxic environments like I was when I was probably a bit younger. And yeah, these coaches and trainers and teachers just need to be so hyper aware of what they're saying to these kids, because I think a lot of them, yeah, is just super unaware of, of that huge impact, how these people are going to grow up feeling about themselves. And we spoke about this this conversation with these young girls and how we can be having these conversations in a really healthy way. I know in your study, you mentioned that there was a lack of girls being involved due to the all-girls schools more frequently declining being involved, um, citing to the concern of talking about disordered um, eating behaviours, which is understandable. Um, and we can understand the concerns here, but in your opinion, how can we be having these conversations more often with young girls in a really healthy way, um, especially for girls that are suffering? Yeah, that that was a really tricky part of the research process, actually, that they just didn't want a bar of it. Um, I think there's a real fear around discussing serious mental health issues, whether it's relating to eating disorders or even things like self-harm and suicidality. Um, don't get me wrong, these are very severe and life-threatening issues, and I think that they do need to be handled with the utmost tact and, and delicacy, especially where young people are involved. But a lot of people adopt this belief that maybe by not talking about it or not asking about it, we can protect kids from it. But I think that's becoming increasingly unrealistic, uh, as we sort of talked about earlier, as, as younger and younger children are accessing the internet. Um, in fact, I actually think that approach of, of, oh, we just don't talk about that here, is actually quite dangerous. Um, but if people are super determined to not have these conversations, then I think that support needs to be provided in a way that's really positively framed. So we need to be teaching girls about things that reduce risk for body image issues and eating problems. So, you know, things that we've already talked about today, like body diversity, body appreciation, body neutrality. We need to be talking about diet culture so that we can call it out when we see it um, and the way that it really harms physical and psychological health. 
Um, we need to teach girls how to nourish their bodies and, and fuel themselves for a, a meaningful life, uh, whatever that looks like for them. And I think last but not least, we need to stop making tough conversations about mental health feel like really taboo topics. Um, because I think when there's fear, there's secrecy. And when there's secrecy, there's shame. So it makes it feel impossible for people of all ages, not just adolescents, to come forward and to seek support when they're struggling. So kind of like you said, and I share the same opinion, we just have to get really good at talking about this stuff with the young people in our lives and, and also with each other as well. Uh, I think by normalizing these kinds of conversations, we can hopefully make it feel less scary to ask for help. Um, I try to talk about this kind of thing in all my circles, you know, at, obviously at work, but also in my personal life and within my family, even at, you know, Femi on a Friday. <laughs> um, but I think by establishing open dialogue, it's my hope that if people are ever in a tough spot, they know that they can pick up the conversation and, you know, I wouldn't freak out or be totally shocked. And I think a lot of people take that approach as well, which is really, really good. You know, the more we can collectively offer ourselves up as safe people for these kinds of discussions, um, the better off the people in our circles will be. Definitely, because you don't get better not talking about things, you know, like it's probably some of the biggest relieving moments is to have conversations about like what you're going through. So yeah, yeah. good on you for creating those environments everywhere you are in the world <laughs> work and 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 I think that's like you know one of the biggest things we've tried to create at the Femi community um is that open dialogue and like I just think women have suffered a lot in the past in silence with like you know things relating to their menstrual cycles or you know body body image beliefs or yeah how they feel about themselves so like to have a space where they can actually talk about these things and realize like you know most people there have had something that they've been through and can give their words of wisdom from their own journey, you know, like it's so incredible to have that space. Um, so yeah, good on you for creating those open spaces. And yeah, like you say, it's so important to get that early intervention. So by creating those, um, you know, that open dialogue, people can get help earlier and get better earlier and you know, have better health outcomes long-term. So amazing. Oh, that was so, so insightful, Katie. We're so grateful for your time. Um, but before we finish up, we have a couple of quick fire questions to throw you away. Question number one, what advice would you give your 15-year-old self? Oh, that is such a good question. I would probably tell her to like keep her eyes towards the future. Like know that, life is hard sometimes and things when things feel overwhelming I think perspective is a beautiful thing to be able to take a step back and say this isn't going to last forever is is really helpful I think when you're having a tough time the world feels very small and it feels difficult to see the other end so I would definitely remind her to yeah eyes up keep moving yeah I love that I also just love that you say life is hard because I think people look at other other people going back to the comparison thing and think that their life is just easy and perfect but I think everybody finds life hard at times and it's so normal so I appreciate that you said that uh the last quick fire question is what is your purpose on mother earth I know it's a big question but right now where you're at today what is your purpose mm, that's another really yeah really good but really big question um 
I really truly feel like I found my purpose in my work um, and sort of what I was talking about a little earlier about this idea that like I walked this path and I really don't want other people to have to walk it in the same way that I did. Um, so I feel very fortunate in the sense that that what I do feels very purposeful and probably similar to the two of you in many ways it feels like a giving back of the things that I've learned in my 28 years of life um, and that really sort of keeps me going when it all feels a bit hard or a bit overwhelming um, or a bit complicated is, is sort of a firm conviction that that my purpose is to help return some of those tricks some of those tools to adolescents that are having a tough time like I had that's beautiful it's so inspiring and interesting to hear so many people's purpose uh goes back to their tough times you know like so anyone listening and if you're in a really tough time like you never know what that may lead to like keep pushing through and you may be using this one day in the future for your entire you know everything you believe in and, and what you put your effort behind. So I really love that um, purpose. That's amazing, Katie. And you are nailing it. Um, I have one real quick question before we go and wrap up. Um, what's next for you? Like, are you planning on doing more research? Like, yeah, what's happening in the research space for you next? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, I, I am keen to sort of stay involved in research. Um, I'm just wrapping up my clinical training. So I'm getting registered as a psychologist. So that means more patient facing clinical work with me, more for me, one more one-to-one contact with um, kids, with adults, with sort of whoever comes across the line. So I'm really looking forward to um, getting out of the office and back into the halls of the hospital and, and seeing patients again. Um, so yeah, exciting things ahead. So exciting. Well, your patients are going to be very lucky to have you. Um, you're such a wealth of knowledge and also just super empathetic. Like we can definitely tell through your story, you've been some, through some challenging times and it's just awesome to, to think that you're going to have an impact on so many other people and understand what people are going through as well, I think is really, really important in the industry and the work that we all do. So Thank you so much for your time today. Really love this conversation. I know our listeners are going to really appreciate it too. So thank you so much. Um, we will be tagging Katie into our Instagram show notes so you can go ahead and check her out and check out her work. We'll attach her, her PhD there as well so you can have a read through her research. And if you want to get at us, you can get at us on Instagram at femi.co or head to our website, femi.co, or else Esther and I will be back in your ears next week. And thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Katie.